Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2, is where I want to direct your attention. We're going to start reading in verse 39, and we're going to read all the way through to uh, verse 52. Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 39. We're going to pick the story up after Mary and Joseph, with baby Jesus, have returned to Nazareth. So they have dedicated him at the temple, done everything according to the law, uh, and presumably, if we integrate Matthew into Luke, they've already been to Egypt and back, and now they're returning to Nazareth. In verse 39 of Luke chapter 2 is where we'll begin. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. You're supposed to see the, the difference. In verse 47, his understanding is great. In verse 50, their understanding is not great. They don't understand. He does. Verse 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the only passage we just read in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, this is the only passage in the entire New Testament that describes a scene from the childhood of Jesus. And to be more accurate, he's not even a child in this culture, in this passage. He's on the verge of adulthood. And still, this is the only glimpse of him that we have. If Luke were filmed, if Luke were a movie, uh, the screen would fade at the end of verse 40, and it would open up in verse 41, 12 years later. Then at the end of verse 52, it would fade to black again and open up in chapter 3, 20 years after that. The Gospels are silent about the first three decades of the life of our Lord. 90% uh, of his life, those 30 years, encompass 90% of his life, and there's less than 1% of the Gospels that say anything about it. You actually can continue this. Uh, about a third of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of the life of our Lord. And uh, the rest of the Gospels, the other two-thirds, cover the last three years of his life. But 90% not present in the Gospels. What was Jesus doing during this time? That's actually what I want to talk to you uh, about with you this morning. Our topic for today is, what was Jesus doing and why does it matter 
We're going to dig into some of these texts in the Bible that describe this period of time. And I actually think it it has the potential to be quite fruitful for our own thinking about how we follow him. Uh, You should know, you probably know, this is a source of endless curiosity. What was Jesus like those 30 years? What was his life like? Um, There's things in the Bible that the Bible doesn't tell us that I want to know a lot of things. Sometimes it seems like I'm better at describing uh, my, uh, um, to describe what I wish was in the Bible than to understand what is actually in the Bible. Sometimes that's the way it is. Um, within a few hundred years of the life of Jesus, our gospels were written early, but within a, fir- a few hundred years, other books, also called gospels, started to appear. Probably they came in, in part to some of the questions that people had. Uh, they, the gospels, these early gospels, actually they're not as early as our gospels, let's say the middle gospels, uh, uh, try to answer those questions, what was Jesus' life like? And they often have names associated with the apostles as if one of the apostles had written them. I want to read a couple scenes from one of those early gospels so that you know for sure what didn't happen when Jesus was a child. All right, so this is from the infancy gospel of Thomas. See how true it rings to you. His father was a carpenter and made at that time plows and yokes. And he received an order from a rich man to make a bed for him. But when one beam was shorter than its corresponding one, and they did not know what to do, the child, Jesus, said to his father, Joseph, put down the two pieces of wood and make them even from the middle to the end. And Joseph did as the child told him. And Jesus stood at the other end and took hold of the shorter piece of wood and stretching it, made it equal with the other. And his father Joseph saw it and was amazed. And he embraced the child and kissed him saying, happy am I that God has given me this child. Wouldn't that be convenient when you're doing projects around the house, right? If uh, you don't have to measure twice to cut once, you just measure once. And if it's too short, Jesus will fix it. It'll be fine. That'd be convenient. There's other uh, accounts like this, miracles that the, baby, uh, that the child Jesus supposedly did. One time uh, in the gospel, these gospel accounts, he made uh, several clay sparrows. And when someone complained that he was doing this work on the Sabbath, he just snapped his fingers and made the, the clay sparrows real sparrows and they flew away. Here's a less pleasant story from uh, the, gospel infant, uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas. See how you, this strikes you. Later, Jesus was going through the village again when a boy ran up and bumped him on the shoulder. Jesus got angry and said to him, you won't continue your journey. And all of a sudden, the boy fell down and died. Some people saw what happened and said, where has this child Jesus come from? Everything he says happens instantly. The parents of the dead boy came to Joseph and blamed him, saying, Because you have such a boy, you can't live with us in this village or else teach him to bless and not to curse. He's killing our children. So Joseph summoned Jesus and admonished him in private saying, why are you doing all this? These people are suffering (coughs) and so they hate and harass us. Jesus said, I know these aren't your words. Still, I'll keep quiet for your sake, but these people must take their punishment. There and then his accusers became blind. Those who saw this became very fearful and at a loss. All they could say was, 
Every word he says, whether good or bad, has become a deed, a miracle even. When Joseph saw that Jesus had done such a thing, he got angry and grabbed his ear and pulled very hard. The boy, Jesus, became infuriated with him and replied, It's one thing for you to speak, seek, and not find. It's quite another for you to act this unwisely. Don't you know that I don't really belong to you? Don't make me upset. Jesus is kind of a brat in this story, isn't he? How, how true does that sound to you? Not very true at all. In fact, uh, th- that can't possibly be true, and none of these stories can possibly be true, and uh, what happens in Matthew chapter 13 be true as well. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he does some miracles, and he teaches, and in Matthew chapter 13, the people in Nazareth say, whoa, we grew up with Jesus who is this man? Who is this who's doing these things? We know him, and wow. They don't say, oh, here's Jesus again up to his old shenanigans. Hide your children because you know what he does. That's not what they say. They say, who is this? Who is this? Now, let me take it one step further. There's often, uh, every three, uh, uh, several years, there's an argument made that there are other gospels. There's just the, there's the four we have in the New Testament. And then there's other gospels. And, and, and the argument is that those other gospels are not part of the Bible because the people, the men who chose the gospels that are in our Bible, chose them because they wanted to protect their own power. And the other gospels that are out there um, would challenge the power or the supremacy of the church. So that's why we don't have those other gospels. And the argument continues. See, some of those other gospels talk about things like Jesus' relationship with Mary Magdalene. And if we had those other gospels, then the church would be different. It wouldn't be all about the power that it is. Well, let me read to you a selection from the Gospel of Thomas. This is different than the one I just read, but another gospel from several hundred years after Jesus was born. Uh, here's a line. This happened after the resurrection about Mary Magdalene. They had a discussion about her. Simon Peter, the text says, Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. May God add the blessing to the reading of this terrible thing, right? This is not the Bible. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, such a blessing this is. It's so much better than when Peter says things like a husband and wife are co-heirs together of the grace of life. Or when Paul says things like, um, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Uh, don't believe it. Don't believe it when, pe- when people say that the church is maliciously suppressing those other gospels that are liberating. The truth of the matter is that the New Testament is a culturally transformative book. It, it transformed this culture in which uh, somebody could write a gospel like this and it would be accepted. Well, we'll let that bide for now. What was Jesus doing? Why does it matter? Two things. Number one, he was growing. He was growing. It mentions that twice in this passage, verse 40, and the child grew, (coughs) and then verse 52, and Jesus grew. 
Um, this, this, these uh, sentences parallel what Luke has already written about John the Baptist. Flip over with me, if you would, for just a minute to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 80. Luke chapter 1, verse 80, right at the end before chapter 2. Um, Luke uh, concludes his description of the birth of John by saying this, And the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So there's this. And then look at 1 Samuel 2.26. It's going to appear on the screen. 1 Samuel 2.26 says, And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So when Luke records what he does about Jesus in chapter 2, verse 40 and verse 52, he's saying Jesus is in line with these prophets who from an early age have had a close relationship with God. Now there's two aspects of this growth of Jesus that I want to think about with you. First, we read in this text that Jesus grew as a human being. He grew as a human being. We've been talking about that in uh, Sunday school, the Sunday school class that I teach. I don't know if you noticed, Pastor Scott was talking about the classes this morning. Uh, we'll be all up here next week. And he said there's the uh, junior and senior high class, and then there's the young adult class, and then there's the other class is what he said. You know, what adjective would you put instead of young adult? So... All of you fogies who've been with me in the other class, we've been talking about this a little bit, so I'm going to repeat myself a little. You'll forgive me, I'm sure. Um, at Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the fact that God the Son took to himself human nature, and Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, two natures, a human nature, a divine nature in one person. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And the focus of this passage, when it talks to us about his growth, is on his human nature. God took to himself a real human nature. He was really a human, and it's evident in the fact that he grew. There was some point in time when Mary uh, said to the God-man, her son, she said to him, that tunic is getting too short for you. We got to get a bigger one. And, and, and wherever they drew their lines on the wall uh, 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 to show the growth of their children, Jesus' line kept getting higher and higher up the wall. And there was some point in time in Nazareth when someone was looking at Jesus standing next to his mother Mary and said, oh, Jesus, you're taller than your mother. And there was a point in time, you know what happened, when Joseph and Jesus stood back to back to figure out who, which one of us is the tallest, and, and somebody was cheating. You know that happened, right? It wasn't Jesus. Somebody was cheating, right? Hmm? Now, I know, I, I'm, I'm putting our cultural markers of growth back into the New Testament. I, I, don't, I don't know that they did those things, but whatever they did to mark the growth of boys and girls they did it to Jesus too because he was a real human. He grew in uh, physically. He grew physically. And the text also says he grew in wisdom. Uh, verse 52 says Jesus grew in wisdom. And then in verse 40, it says, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. That word became strong can refer to physical strength or it can refer to moral strength. And most likely because of that next line, he was filled with wisdom. He's talking about Jesus' growth and moral strength. Again, this emphasis on his humanity, his divine nature did not need to grow in wisdom because his divine nature knows God the Son, knows everything, and has always known everything. 
But here he is growing as a human being. He's growing in his insight into the will of God. He's growing in his understanding of, the, of how God made the world to work. And he's, understanding in, he's growing in his understanding of how God orders the world through his word. And he's growing in his understanding of how human beings have corrupted the world that God made. He grew physically, he grew in wisdom. And the text mentions here, puts an emphasis on the fact that the grace, verse 40, of God was on him. Or verse 52, similar language, he grew in favor with God and man. Which means that Jesus had everything he needed to grow and develop in order to fulfill the mission that God God had given him. Bruce Ware says, that we should go one step further. He thinks we can go one step further, that this combination in this text of grace and wisdom indicates to us that God's favor to Jesus is most evident in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That that God uh, the Father uh, endued his son, uh, the God-man, with the Holy Spirit, and that explains his growth in wisdom. So we move on here from the second aspect of of his growth. We're going to think about this. He grew (coughs) as a human being. And secondly, he grew by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The grace of God and the wisdom of God in this child. He grew physically because his mother fed him good food. He grew in wisdom because of the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Well, think about this passage in the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, notice how this combines the spirit and wisdom. The spirit and wisdom are together in this passage. Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. (laughs) That's a good image. Uh, Jesse, David's father, and the, the line, the kingdom was cut off. So Jesse's tree is just a stump, but there's gonna be a shoot that's gonna come up. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And and here is what's going to happen to him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. There it is. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Uh, Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? He's wise. I think that the best way to describe these years of Jesus' life, the years of Jesus' life, is that Jesus lived a normal human life in which he grew in wisdom, in stature, but it was one that was filled with the Holy Spirit. His growth was filled, uh, propelled by the Holy Spirit, and he was shaped, and the Holy Spirit used the Word of God to shape him. Spirit of God, Word of God, growth of the God-man. Look with me over at Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. We'll think about this even more. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice the presence of the Spirit in Jesus. And then in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, he says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. There again. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, 
Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 21, he says, he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How, how in the world does Jesus know that Isaiah 61 applies to him? That he can go to the synagogue in Nazareth and say, here it is. Here's the fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, I think this is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God, at some point in time, as Jesus was reading the Word of God, says to him, this is about you. This is you. This is the mission that you have from your Father. How is it on the cross, Jesus cries out, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does Jesus know that Psalm 22 is about him? Because the Spirit of God used the Word of God to enlighten him about the mission that he had from his Father. How is it that Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man and talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds with God's great power and God's great glory? How does he know that? Because the Spirit of God, when he was reading Daniel 7, the Spirit of God took the Word of God and used it to shape Jesus in the mission in which uh, his, his Father had given him. I mention this because there's some significant application and help for us. See, our instinct, Bruce Ware says this, our instinct is to think that the extraordinary life of Jesus in the Gospels is because Jesus, of course, is divine. He's got a divine nature. No wonder that he resisted temptation. No wonder that he loved his enemies. No wonder that he forgave people. No wonder that he was so courageous in, face, in the face of the, the religious leaders. He's God. No wonder. But I don't think that that reading, that way of interpretation, that instinct is supported by the New Testament. The divine nature, Bruce Ware says, is something that he possessed but did not express. He lived a human life empowered by the Spirit, instructed by the Word, which is the same resources that you have. Again, last week in Sunday school, I talked about how earlier in December, our family went to Longwood Gardens. We love to go to Longwood Gardens. It's one of my favorite things to do in December is to look at the decorations at Longwood Gardens. It's not cheap, but it's worth it. I like to go. Um, be careful if you go and look, you might, you might get a little discouraged. You'll look and see the beautiful trees and how they're lit and wonderful decorations. You might get discouraged because then you come home and look at your house. That might discourage you a little bit because your house doesn't look like Longwood Gardens. <laughs> our house, you know who decorates our house? My, uh, me and uh, our, my three children, our three children decorate our house. The four of us do it. Um, anything you see at our house that's classy, it's because of the children. Anything you see at our house that's tacky, it's me. It's me. Only by their restraint do we not have a huge reindeer in the front lawn. So anyway, uh, uh, um, it's, my house looks nothing like Longwood Garden, nothing. And, and for good reason. They have horticulturists and contractors and designers and planners. They have made their plans for Christmas probably five years out. They got long, big plans for how beautiful Longwood Gardens is going to be at Christmas. No wonder it looks so good. No wonder, this is what we think then about Jesus. No wonder he does what he does because he's the God man, his divine nature. He's got those resources that you don't have, except he lived a normal human life filled with the spirit instructed by the word of God. 
Now, I know there's one crucial difference, one crucial difference between you and Jesus. You have a a human nature, unlike his human nature, your human nature and mine uh, are broken by sin, corrupted by sin. We have this inner disposition to sin that Jesus did not have, but he had the same resources and lived by the same resources that God promises you. I mention that because some of you are so greatly discouraged by your slow, slow progress in following Jesus. There's some sins that you have that you have just been struggling with and you're making what seems like such very little progress. In fact, you, you have huh, two or three times given up on making any progress in these things. And I wanna remind you this morning, friends, of, of God's great kindness to us. You have the spirit of God and you have the word of God. I can remind you this morning, the wind is blowing. The wind of the Spirit is blowing. Put your kite in the air again. Throw it, throw it up again. Second Peter chapter 1, look what it says. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Everything we need. Everything we need to live a godly life. And I just want to encourage you this morning to turn and trust in that again, to work at it again. Um, Every now and then when my children are gone and they have some event that they're uh, um, engaged in, they're going with a friend somewhere, they're going with um, some sort of uh, you know, friends' church invited them somewhere. They're, they're just gone. Uh, they, they need some money for lunch or for dinner. So I open my wallet and I pull out some money. Here's, here's $20. Um, this is for your lunch. I expect change. And when they come home, I say to them, how did it go? It was fine. Did you have a good time? Yes. Where's my change? And they say, well, um, you know, they, there was somebody there who was collecting money for this missions project. And I just knew that it was the sort of thing that you would want to support. So I put all the change in the, in the offering. Okay. I'm not sure I would have, but I appreciate the fact that you think I would have. Or I'll say, hey, where's my change? And they'll say, well, when it was over, we all got ice cream cones. And my friend didn't have enough money for ice cream cone, an ice cream cone. And I knew that you wouldn't want him to go without an ice cream cone. So I used the money that I was going to bring home to buy him an ice cream cone because I knew that that's what you would want me to do. I don't know at that moment whether to be honored or angered, right? I mean, where's my change? I want my change. But my children honor me because they think that my heart and my wallet are big enough to meet those needs. Do you think that God's heart and his resources are big enough to meet the needs that you have, to provide you with everything that you need to live a godly life? You should take encouragement from Jesus, this normal human life filled with the Spirit, instructed by the Word. Maybe this is why John says that God's commands are not burdensome because he knows we have the Spirit of God and we have the Word of God. And maybe I can encourage you again to take up this call to walk by the Spirit that's in the Bible. He grew as a human being. Now, secondly, what else was he doing? He grew. What else was Jesus doing? He secondly was obeying. He obeyed. That's what else he was doing during these 30 years. He obeyed his parents. We already read that from Luke chapter 2. 
even though they didn't understand everything that he was about, he obeyed them. That's striking. One time when I was being particularly obnoxious, I was a teenager, and uh, my mother sat down with me and she said, Joel, someday you may be smarter than I am, but that is not today. Huh. Um, it, for Jesus, that was these days. That was these days. And he still, he went to Nazareth and he was obedient to them, his te- the text says. Now, there's two aspects to this obedience that I want to think about with you for, the, for a few minutes this morning. He obeyed, first of all, in preparation, in preparation. And for help here, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to um, uh, read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 5 and think about Jesus' obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and we'll finish the sentence, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll pick up Melchizedek in a bit, uh, in in some other time. But just think, you noticed his obedience here in this passage, right? Did you see that? He, uh, his reverent submission is mentioned in verse seven. And then verse eight talks about his obedience. You see them there, but I wonder if you're uh, disturbed uh, or troubled a little bit by the fact that it says he learned obedience and verse 9 says, he became, he was made perfect. Now, Hebrews is not saying that Jesus was disobedient and needed to learn obedience, like in that infancy gospel I read, or that he was imperfect and became perfect. No, no, no. Hebrews has already said up in chapter 4, verse 15, he did not sin. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the lifelong obedience of Jesus, what was he doing during those 30 years he was obeying? And his obedience during that time was training ground, preparatory work for providing salvation. Think about it this way. Um, Some of you are very good at math and you've been learning and studying math for a long time. How did you learn how to do mathematics? Well, you started when you were very young. Somebody taught you how to count. Maybe when you were on the changing table, one of your parents picked up your toes. And one, two, three, four, five. And you began to learn and associate those numbers and those sounds and with objects. Uh, it, your parents counted with you constantly. And when you finally figured out how to count to 10 by yourself, they made you do it in front of your grandparents and everybody who would listen. You went to kindergarten, your kindergarten teacher taught you about grouping into tens and how to count to a hundred. And then you were so excited that you made everybody you could think of listen to you count to a hundred. Then you learned addition and you got those flashcards that you had to practice and subtraction and multiplication, (laughs) multiplication and division, division (laughs) and fractions, fractions. In my school every year, the calendar worked out such that we were doing fractions in math class and square dancing in gym class. It was the most horrible time of the year. Fractions. You move on from from that to what? Algebra, then geometry, 
then trigonometry, then calculus. And I washed out after calculus. I don't know what comes next. Something comes next. You progressed very slowly. You progressed moving carefully along through math. Well, the, the, the text says Jesus followed a similar path. But at the core of his curriculum were not fractions. The core of his curriculum was suffering. Verse 8, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now think about this. When you suffer, when suffering enters your life, your natural instinct is to try to get out of it, to get out of suffering as much and as quickly, as, as fast and as quickly as possible, which is fine. Um, we're, we're, we're not masochists. God put nerves in your hands so that when you get too close to something that's hot, you pull back. But there are times that you can't get out of suffering. There are times that it's physically impossible for you to get out of suffering. So imagine you're driving down the road, someone texts you, you pick up your phone, you take your eyes off the road, and you go across the, the line and you cause an accident, a terrible accident. And you and the, the person who was in the car that you hit are both in the hospital. And you're laying there in your hospital bed and you think to yourself, oh, that other person is somewhere in the hospital too. And you think, if I could just go back in time and undo that, I would, I would erase this from history. But you can't, it's physically impossible for you to go back and change time. Bo, but you wish you could. Sometimes getting out of suffering is physically impossible. Sometimes getting out of suffering is morally impossible. Some of you are having trouble, trouble these days with your toddler. And you look at this defiant little child and you wonder how you and your spouse could have produced such demon spawn. And you think, what am I going to do? And, and you look at their birth certificate to see if there's a warranty information on the back of it. And you're wondering, can I take this child back to the hospital and exchange him for somebody else? You know, the, like, ugh, it's morally impossible sometimes to get out of suffering. Every person in this room has made a promise that has been hard to keep. And you wish you didn't have to keep it. That's our instinct. And when suffering comes... You respond, grief, regret, lament, shock. They're all normal responses to suffering. Eventually, though, faith comes in. Faith comes in and faith says, this is the path that God has called me to walk. What does faithfulness to God look like now? What does faithfulness to God look like now? Jesus was in the school of suffering and he took up every assignment that same way by saying, what does faithfulness to God look like now? What does faithfulness to God in this situation look like now? And, and the text says he was made perfect. He was being made perfect, which means that just like you in math class, the curriculum got harder and harder and harder. There's levels of suffering that the Lord Jesus endured. When he started, um, uh, Little, a little easier, maybe. You can think about it. Jesus in his late teens, in his late teens, is seeing his friends get married, but not him. And he's going to endure the suffering he knows of loneliness, that particular brand of loneliness. And he, he had a lot of brothers and some sisters. Text, the Bible doesn't say anything about this, but 
Don't you imagine Jesus had nieces and nephews and one of them must have come up to him at some point in time and said, Jesus, when are you going to get married, Uncle Jesus? When are you going to get married? Hmm. Then there's that suffering of the first moment of his rejection from the religious leaders. What does faithfulness look like now? Do I keep going or not? There's that suffering that he encountered in John chapter 7 when his brothers subtly mocked him because they didn't believe that he was uh, the son of God. There's all that suffering involved in sleeping outside. You remember there was a guy who came up to Jesus one day and said, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and uh, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. All that time he spent traveling around away from his home in Capernaum. He'd moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. He had a home there. He had a, presumably had a bed and some blankets there. But he, he spent a lot of time on the road. And what did he do when he's on the road? He slept in the ground. Hard, cold ground. Must have been times very wet. Suffering. There was a suffering involved when he was in the temple. And the, the people picked up rocks in order to stone him what does faithfulness to God look like now? What does faithfulness to God look like now? Don't think it was easy for Jesus to always answer that question because in verse seven, it says, with prayers and petitions and fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. It's hard. Jesus looks and he sees the suffering that is next for him and he says at every point in time, I will obey, I will obey, I will obey. This progression, this progression. Why this progression? Why this time? I wonder, did it take 30 years of saying, I will obey, I will obey, for Jesus to get to the point where in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could look ahead of the cross and say, I will obey. He wasn't ready when he was 12 years old to kneel in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, not my will, but yours be done. He wasn't ready when he was 20 or 25, but when he was 30 and had been made perfect through a lifetime of obedience, now he's ready and he says in the garden, I will obey this suffering that you have for me. I I will obey it. Now, is there help for you here? I think so, because some of you in in particular are feeling the weight of the curriculum in the school of your own suffering. And you're asking yourself a lot, what does faithfulness to God look like now? What does faithfulness to God look like now? You should should be um, warned that in God's school of suffering, the assignments sometimes get harder. That's why I wonder if, if that's why God doesn't save some of the greatest physical challenges of life until you've been here on the planet long enough so that you can handle it. Some of you, your grandmother got a knee replacement surgery. You have no idea how much that hurts and how diligent you have to be in the therapy. It's a good thing that happened to your grandma. She's got enough faith to carry her through. You, if you had that pain now, you'd end up an atheist. But your grandma, she can do it. She can manage. In fact, your grandma, she comes out, she's got a new knee, and she's more like Jesus. Huh, it's astounding. The assignments may get harder in God's school of suffering. But remember, we wait to see what God does in those advanced courses. 
Jesus obeyed in preparation. Secondly, he obeyed as a gift. He obeyed as a gift. Uh, this 30 years of obedience, this silence uh, and the gospels of obedience, Jesus was obeying his father and, and that uh, uh, credit uh, uh, is assigned to us. It becomes our credit. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, my sin assigned to Jesus and he dies. And by faith, all of his righteousness assigned to me and it's mine now by, it's credited to me. It's gift, it's gift. These 30 years of gift. It's called the active righteousness of Jesus in theological terms and it's assigned to me, to, to all who believe. Ron Dunn took his son to a carnival for his birthday and he, his son, he said to his son, you can invite six friends. So Ron Dunn and his son and his, their son's six friends all went to a carnival. And Ron Dunn went up to the, the carnival booth and bought a huge roll of tickets. And they'd go to a ride, and Ron would count out seven tickets. He'd get seven tickets, one to each of those boys, and they'd go have a good time, and they'd ride the ride. Then they'd come back, go to another ride, and he'd hand out seven tickets, have a good time. And then they got to the Ferris wheel, and, and he handed out the seven tickets, and there was still one little boy standing there. And he said, who are you? He said, my name is Johnny. Well, who are you, Johnny? I'm your son's new friend. And he said that if I come to you, uh, you'll give me a ticket. Ron Dunn said, what do you think I did? I absolutely gave that kid a ticket because he's a friend of my son's. Every Christian is a friend of Jesus. And when we lift our hands to the Father in heaven, he fills them, chiefly with his own son's righteousness. I mentioned that this morning in particular because you have running through your mind this consistent, persistent dialogue that you are not a sufficient person, that you're not enough, that you're not a good enough dad, that you're not a good enough mom, that you're, good enough, you're not a good enough boss or employee, that you're not a good enough housekeeper, that you're not a good enough manager of your finances, that you're not a good enough steward of your body, that you're not a, not a not good enough Christian. You have this voice running through your mind all the time saying, you are not enough. And the good news of the gospel that we believe is that in Jesus, in the way that matters the most, you're standing before God, you have been in Jesus made enough. You're not enough. That's true. But Jesus is enough. And if you're in him, you can stand before God. Friends, we don't have a one-quarter Savior who saves us 25%. We don't have a half-Savior. We don't have a three-quarter Savior. We don't have a 98% Savior. We have a whole Savior. These are silent years in the Gospels, but they're very significant years in Jesus' life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. We're thankful to you for uh, these silent years. You do not describe them in detail and someday we'll want to know more. I'm, I'm sure we'll ask. We'll have an opportunity to ask someday. But we are thankful to, uh, 
we are thankful for the obedience of the Lord Jesus, that he did set a path for us in which we could follow, and that uh, he huh, is the magna cum laude graduate of the school of suffering. Grant, Lord, that by faith we might ask this question that Jesus must have asked, what does faithfulness to you look like now? Strengthen us and help us so that we might, by faith, follow our master, he, the one who died for us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.